Good afternoon. It's a blessing to be here today. If you will open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 10, if they're not already open there. Truly, God's word is more precious than fine gold, more to be desired uh, than gold, or more a delight to us than uh, honey of the honeycomb. It is a mirror that we're intended to look in, that we're intended to see God's character uh, and then seek to emulate that character within our lives. So let us not take lightly when it is that we, we open up God's word together. Uh, let us not forget the purpose for which we are doing this. We're doing this so that when each and every one of us leave here today, we might be able to better reflect God, better reflect his character than when we came. Last week, we began studying through the book of Judges. We studied through chapters 1 through 9 together, talking about plumbing the depths of God's mercy. We saw that the deeper the book plunges into immorality, the deeper we see God reaching down in mercy to deliver the unworthy, giving them opportunity after opportunity to come back to him. And as we read the book of the Judges, the hero of the story is certainly not Othniel or Ehud or Deborah or Barak or Gideon. The hero of the story is God. Um, and so let's keep that in mind as we study again today. We left Israel at the end of their rest. After Gideon, during his day, is the very last time in the book of Judges that it says that Israel had any rest. Because after Gideon dies, one of his own sons, named Abimelech, which incidentally means my father is king, uh, arises and massacres his brothers in order that he might rule over Israel. And so oppression now is not just coming from without from foreign nations, oppression is even coming from within. And God's deliverance at this point doesn't come from rising up a savior. It comes from allowing wicked men to destroy each other. As far as Israel has fallen, it's just going to get worse from here, though. And yet, the deeper they fall into immorality, the deeper we will see the depths of God's mercy. Here in chapter 10, today I, I just want to focus on Jephthah and Samson. We're going to look at chapters 10 through 16. Lord willing, we'll save 17 through 21 for uh, another time. But here with Jephthah, we see that this cycle starts with the most thorough description of Israel's rebellion to date. Look in chapter 10 and starting in verse 6, it says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. The number seven throughout the scripture is often used as a symbolism of completeness. Well, here we have seven different gods that they are serving and yet, God, Jehovah God, doesn't even make their list. They didn't just not serve God. They served pretty literally everyone else besides God. So God lets them serve the nations of the gods that they have chosen. There in verse 7, it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. What were two of those gods that they were serving? Well, the gods of the Philistines and the god of the Ammonites. Here, God's basically saying, you want to serve the gods of the Philistines and Ammonites? Okay, they can have you. Let's see how you like it being under their control for a while. 
And so in verse 8, we see that they were crushed and oppressed, that they were in great distress because of the gods that they had chosen. And Israel realizes their error, and we actually see something here in chapter 10 that we haven't seen up to this point. Israel actually confesses their sin before the Lord. We saw that at the beginning of what Luke read for us a moment ago in verse 10. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. But it seems that their confession is really more of a utilitarian, self-serving move to try to get deliverance, not a heartfelt recognition of what they have done against God. This is what the New Testament might call worldly sorrow rather than godly sorrow. Look what they say down in verse 15 of chapter 10. It says, And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. They're saying, listen, we we understand it. We get it. We've sinned. Um, And we'll do whatever you want us to do to make things right. You want us to get rid of these other gods? We'll get rid of these other gods. Just please, could, could you deliver us? That, that's, that's really what we need right now. And we see with God's response that he knows their heart. This has happened time and time again. He knows where this is leading. He knows that even when he brings deliverance, they're not fully going to turn back to him. And so notice what God says to them early on in verse 11 through 13. It says, And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. God's mercy was intended to turn them back from serving these other gods. Um, God saved them from all these people. And as he lists these, starting with Egypt, bringing them out of the land of Egypt, going through many of the nations that he has even delivered them from uh, earlier in the book of Judges, God shows, yes, I've delivered you time and time again. I'm, I'm able to do that. But are you going to respond to my mercy? And because Israel is not learning their lesson because they're not turning back to him. They're just seeing God as giving them some type of get out of jail free card. And rather than letting God's mercy drive them back to him, he refuses to save them. At least at this point, God is not going to raise a savior for them. So Israel tests the limits of God's long suffering and Israel ends up in chapter 11 having to raise up their own savior. Up until now, we've seen God always rising up a savior, but notice at the end of chapter 10, verse 18, it says, and the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is very similar to what we saw in Judges chapter 1 and verse 1 at the very beginning of the book. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? But now they're not inquiring of the Lord. They're getting together and they're asking one another, well, who's going to do this? Who's going to lead us? Who's going to bring us deliverance? And they end up settling on a man named Jephthah. The man they find sounds a whole lot like Abimelech back in chapter 9. Jephthah is the uh, child of a prostitute. And uh, just like Abimelech was the product 
uh, of a foreign concubine that Gideon married. And it says that Jephthah had gone out and worthless fellows had surrounded him here in verse 3. It's very similar to Abimelech, who we're told in chapter 9, verse 4, hired worthless and reckless fellows that gathered around him. And so this is not a man who is selected because of his character. He's not going to lead Israel back into fellowship with God. He's not uh, selected because he's going to be this great religious reformer. He's selected evidently because he's a good fighter. And in Israel's mind, that's what we really need right now. And so they reach out to him. Um, and yet we see that God is with Jephthah. God grows weary of judgment and intervenes. Later on in chapter 11, verse 29, we read, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. So God didn't raise up Jephthah. They were left to their own devices to try to pick somebody, but God in his mercy works through Jephthah. I think this goes back to what we saw back in chapter 10 and verse 16. It says, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. I think Luke's version said he became weary of the misery of Israel. It's not that God is motivated to be merciful because of Israel's repentance here. It's not that Jephthah was just such an upstanding character that God says, you know what? You're good enough. I'll give my spirit to you. No, God is motivated because he is tired of judgment. Because he doesn't want to continue to judge his people. It's nothing about his people or what they do or what Jephthah does that motivates his mercy. God is merciful because he is merciful, because he wants to show mercy. We see this concept in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, where God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Make no mistake about it, God is a God of justice and righteousness, and judgment, and even wrath, but he takes no pleasure in the execution of his wrath. He takes no pleasure in executing justice upon us. God wants to be merciful. Even when it is clear that his mercy is not going to have the desired effect upon the hearts of the people, that doesn't keep him from showing the world his mercy, because that's who he is. He is merciful. So while Israel's repentance may just be self-serving, God's mercy isn't only extended when it's going to have its desired effect. You know, Israel is only going to repent when it has its desired effect. You know, if, if we can convince God to help us, well, then we'll repent. Well, God's going to show mercy not only when it's going to accomplish his purpose within their hearts. God's going to show mercy when it brings him glory by showing forth his mercy. And so even if it doesn't have the desired effect upon him, it shows us today his mercy. That God is merciful because that's who he is and who he wants to be towards us. But we see Jephthah is not a man devoid of faith. In his correspondence with the Ammonites in chapter 11, he reveals that he knows a great deal about Israel's history. And he talks to them about the different victories that the Lord Jehovah had brought his people. Uh, that Jehovah is the one who gave them the land of Sihon and Og, that Jehovah was the one who gave them the land of the Canaanites. So Jephthah has some faith 
in the God of Israel. But he doesn't seem necessarily to acknowledge God as the sovereign creator of all the universe, the only true and living God. In fact, he seems to simply see Jehovah as Israel's local deity that has accomplished great things on their behalf. Look in chapter 11 and verse 24. As he's speaking to the, the Ammonites, he says, will, not, uh, will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, maybe he's just speaking accommodatively, but he seems to be saying, you know, well, your God, he, he works over there and he gives you what you have over there. But this is our God and this is our land and this is what our God has given us. And if there's any question that Jephthah has a pagan concept of Jehovah God, I think as we continue to read chapter 11, that will come to light here. Notice in chapter 11, verse 30 and 31, how Jephthah tries to secure victory for him and his people. In chapter 11, verse 30 and 31, it says, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah is trying to negotiate with God. Basically trying to bribe God. Listen, God, if, if you'll give me the victory, this is what I will give you. And what he promises God here has a very pagan flavor to it. Uh, in fact, in verse 31, it says, then whatever comes out, that literally uh, can be translated, whoever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me. In fact, the RSV and the NET translate it that way. And this idea of somebody coming out to meet or greet Jephthah is not something that would commonly apply to animals. In fact, that exact same phrase is used in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, when it talks about um, the king of Sodom coming out to greet or meet Abraham after his victory. It's used of Jael coming out to Sisera in Judges 4 and verse 18, when Sisera is on the run from the battle, and Jael comes out to meet him and welcomes uh, him into her tent. That same exact phrase in the Hebrew is used in 1 Samuel 18 and verse 6, when it says that the women went out to meet Saul and David and sang victory songs to them. So this phrase is commonly used of people coming out to greet or meet somebody uh, after a battle in at least three cases within the scriptures. Also, it says, coming out of the doors of my house. Now, if he was talking about animals, they would not commonly dwell within the doors of his house. Uh, and so I think all indications here are that Jephthah had every intention of giving a, or at least was open to the possibility of giving a human sacrifice here. That certainly would have been something that, that Chemosh, the god of the, the Moabites and Ammonites, would have cherished. And maybe Jephthah here is thinking, well, if I give this great vow, Jehovah God will, will be convinced by this to bring me victory. I know this doesn't make Jephthah look like a very good individual, but in the context of the book of Judges, I don't believe Jephthah is intended to look like a very good individual because the hero of the story is not Jephthah. 
the hero of the story is God. And so God gives Jephthah the victory despite his vow, despite his distorted faith, despite his people's unfaithfulness, because God is merciful and God wants to give him the victory. But ultimately, what should have been a case for great joy at the victory that God has granted is tainted by Jephthah's distorted faith and becomes a time of great sorrow. In chapter 11, in verse 35, as he does come back from the battle, it says, And as soon as he saw her, talking about his daughter, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. God allows Jephthah to experience the consequences of his distorted faith. God and his providence could have worked this out however he wanted to. But here, he allows Jephthah to experience these consequences. Incidentally, if Jephthah had known the old law, There's a provision within the law in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 4 through 6, that compensation or or atonement can be made for a rash vow to do good or evil. Uh, And if Jephthah had followed the law here, he could have brought a sacrifice, atoning for his rash vow. But that's not what he does. In chapter 11, verse 39, it simply says, And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow, that he had made. They mourn her virginity here, I think because culturally, uh, that is her not being able to, to pass on her lineage or heritage after her. But it seems every indication of the text is that Jephthah follows through with his pagan vow uh, to offer his own daughter. There are not only grave consequences for unfaithfulness, there are also grave consequences for distorted and misdirected faith as well. I think that's what we see in Jephthah here. He is very devoted to his misunderstanding, to his distorted view of what God would desire of him and who God is. And ultimately, Israel's pride leads to full-blown civil war. As we said, at the end of Gideon is the last time Israel has rest. At the beginning of chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Now, this is a lot like what happened back in the days of Gideon. Uh, If you remember uh, in Judges chapter 8 and verse 1, the men of Ephraim had been furious with Gideon because they hadn't received the glory in the battle with him. And Gideon had been a little bit more tactful and tried to butter them up and make them feel good about themselves so they didn't attack him. Here, Jephthah is not quite as tactful, and this turns into a full-blown civil war. Um, And they seize the fords of the Jordan River, something that Ehud had done against the, the Moabites, something that Gideon had done as well in his battle. But now they're doing it against their own people, And they kill 42,000 of the Ephraimites down there in verse 6. And it's interesting, uh, those 42,000 are slaughtered because of a speech impediment. um, That here they identify who is and who is not an Ephraimite Ephraimite by what they're able to pronounce. 
I think that just goes to show the cultural divide that is now separating Israel so much um, that they are able to identify their differences and it be the reason that they slay these 42,000 men of Ephraim. So God does bring deliverance in his mercy, but you see how sorrowful and tragic that deliverance is. It doesn't bring rest. Uh, It brings sorrow to Jephthah and to his family. It brings sorrow to Israel as they end up fighting amongst themselves. And so while God is merciful because he wants to show mercy, God allows Israel to experience the consequences of their unfaithfulness, of their uh, lack of of knowledge uh, and proper faith in him. But that leads us to Samson, a corrupt savior. In this cycle, we don't even see Israel crying out to the Lord. What has been the cycle up until now is that they'll be oppressed and then they'll cry out to the Lord and then God in some way or another will bring about a savior for them. But as we get into Judges 13 and the Philistines oppress Israel for 40 years, we never see them cry out to the Lord. They've become so used to their oppressors that this is their new normal. In fact, later on in chapter 15, in verse 11, when uh, Samson, for his own selfish reasons, has uh, wiped out some of the Philistines, the people of Judah come to Samson in chapter 15 and verse 11. It says, Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? Here, they're, they're not coming to Samson saying, Finally, God has risen a Savior for us. They're saying, What are you doing? You're, you're you know, messing with the status quo here. The the Philistines, they're our rulers. You shouldn't be doing that to them. Sometimes uh, we can become so used to being enslaved to sin and living in the darkness that when somebody comes and tries to bring us deliverance, tries to shine the light and release us from our captivity, we see them as an unwelcome intrusion on our privacy, an attack on our character, an unnecessary disturbance to our comfortable lives. We can become so desensitized and hardened that we think oppression of sin and enslavement to sin is normal. That that's what we're comfortable with. We need to be willing to recognize God's mercy when it's being shown to us and allow it to have its proper effect. But as deluded as Israel is, it doesn't stop God from showing mercy. Even though they don't cry out to him, God still raises a savior. And as we look in Judges chapter 13, we have high hopes for this savior. God sends an angel to prophesy about this coming deliverer even before he is born. And we see what is said uh, about him. In chapter 13, verse 3, beginning, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Here we're told 
that this deliverer is going to be a Nazarite. And back in Numbers 6, we read exactly what that is. A Nazarite literally means one separated or one consecrated. And normally it was a temporary vow, a time set aside um, in which somebody would uh, particularly devote themselves to service and worship and cultivating holiness. And there were three aspects to the Nazarite vow, one of which was not cutting their hair, the one that we remember Samson for. The other two aspects of that vow in Numbers chapter 6 is that they were not to drink uh, any product of the grape, no wine, um, and that they were not to touch any dead bodies and make themselves unclean in that way. And so we may look at this and say, okay, this is going to be a holy, a set-apart Savior, Jephthah, was not the right kind of man to lead them back to God. But maybe, maybe this one will be. Maybe this will be a religious reformer leading them back to the Lord. But what we see in Samson is that he is unholy from the very start. Look at chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, Samson went, da Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Samson is supposed to be the one who is going to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. And what do we see him doing? He wants to intermarry with the Philistines. Um, and you see that phrase at the end of verse 3. He says, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Jason um, recently in a Tuesday night exhortation mentioned to us that phrase in chapter 17 uh, and 18. That Israel is doing what is right in their own eyes. Well, Samson in the book of Judges is the first one to do that. Uh, he is not thinking about, well, what, what is it that God wants of me? What is God sending me to do? He's simply thinking about what it is that he desires and he wants. Very similar uh, in chapter 14 to uh, Eve uh, seeing that the tree was uh, desirable and taking of that fruit. In fact, we're going to see very similar language um, as well as Samson shares something unclean with his parents, just as uh, Eve did with Adam. But we're, we're going to see this even further in Samson's life. In chapter 16, verse 1, we're going to see him having relations with a prostitute. In chapter 16, verse 4, we're going to see his continual relations with a woman of the Philistines named Delilah uh, that seems clearly to be outside of marriage as well. Uh, and ends up being his demise. And so Samson is perhaps the most corrupt character we have seen in the book of Judges thus far. This is not the holy deliverer that we were looking for. Out of all the judges, despite his Nazarite vow, he is the most immoral. And speaking of his Nazarite vow, by the end of chapter 14, he's already most likely violated two out of the three provisions of the Nazarite vow. We normally think about him cutting his hair, but it says he was going to be a Nazarite from birth. And that also involved not having contact with a dead body, becoming unclean in that way, uh, and not 
drinking any wine or product of the grape. Well, what do we see him doing in chapter 14? We see that he kills a lion, and when he comes back along the corpse, he sees honey within that corpse, and he takes of that honey, and he eats of it, and not only that, he shares with his parents who do not know where it's come from. Not only would that be a violation of the Nazarite vow, to have taken something out of this dead corpse and to eaten it would have been unclean for any Israelite to participate in. And so uh, Samson has already clearly violated that aspect of the Nazarite vow. Later on in verse 10, it says, his father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there for the young men used, uh, um, as the young men used to do. So here, when it says he prepared a feast, the word feast here actually comes from the Hebrew word uh, to drink. And it literally could be translated drinking feast. All his companions here are Philistines. Um, it's unlikely in this seven-day feast that Samson is not violating the other part of his Nazarite vow and uh, drinking as well, since that's where this word is derived from. And so cutting Samson here is not the only time he violates his status as a Nazarite. In fact, it's the last straw in him violating his uh, status as a Nazarite. More than this, we see that the spirit does not clothe Samson as it did uh, Gideon, as it was said in chapter 6. Uh, it's not upon Samson, as it's said uh, of Othniel or, or Ehud or Jephthah. It says at the end of chapter 13, verse 25, And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in uh, Mehena Dan between Zorah and Eshtual. It says it began to stir him. Later on, it will say that the Spirit rushed upon him. Uh, it's not that Samson here is in continual fellowship with God and that God is directing him and guiding him and that he's listening to, to God's guidance. It's more that God is goading him with the Spirit uh, and that the, the Spirit is, is rushing upon him and causing him to uh, do this and that. And yet, uh, it's not that he is actively pursuing God's will or pursuing the direction of God's Spirit in these things. Um, God is stirring up and rushing upon him to accomplish some specific task and then it seems withdrawing until he is ready to use him again because the reason that Samson is fighting the Philistines is not a God-glorifying reason. In fact, every time we see him going against the Philistines, it's because of a self-serving reason. First of all, in chapter 14, when he tells this riddle to his companions at the feast and they find out, um, Samson is angry about that, that they figured out his, his riddle uh, because his wife had told it to them. And so he goes down and kills 30 Philistines so that he has the uh, price that he bet uh, them that uh, they, they wouldn't get this riddle. Uh, so it's his hot anger there in chapter 14, verse 19, that is driving him, not simply God's spirit. Um, again, we see in chapter 15, verse 1 through 3, when his wife is given to another man, he is angry about this, uh, that his Philistine wife has been taken away. Uh, and so he goes and sends foxes uh, with torches on their tails into their standing grain. And in chapter 
15 verse 11, notice what he says about this. To the men of Judah that we mentioned earlier who approach him and say, don't you know that the Philistines are ruling over us? What have you done to us? At the end of verse 11, it says, and he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. Samson doesn't say, well, wait a second. God commissioned me to do this. God sent me to deliver us from the Philistines. He says, I'm, I'm just getting even with them. They did it first. And even at the very end of Samson's life in chapter 16, in verse 28, he prays to God, Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson is not primarily fighting the Lord's battles. He's fighting his own battles. And God is using it for his purposes. And ultimately in chapter 16, Samson forgets and neglects God as the source of his strength. You may remember the story of Samson and Delilah in chapter 16 here. But what we see here is Samson is not presented to us as some great hero of faith. We'll talk about why he is mentioned in Hebrews 11 here in a moment. But he's presented as a tragically corrupt deliverer. Because of his love, or rather his lust, for this foreign woman, Delilah, he eventually tells her that his hair is the secret to his great strength. Have you, have you ever thought, why would Samson do such a thing? Because every time he tells her, well, this is the secret to my strength. And if you do that, then I'll be like any other man and the Philistines will be able to take me. He says, if, if you bind me with fresh bowstrings, then, then I'll be like any other man. Well, what happens? He wakes up and he's bound with fresh bowstrings. He says, if, if it's a brand new rope and you tie me with that, well, then my strength will be gone. Well, he wakes up and he's tied up with brand new rope. Uh, if, if you weave the seven locks of my hair into the, the loom, then I'll be like any other man. He wakes up and guess what's happened? You think Samson knew what was going to happen, right? Why in the world would he tell Delilah that she could shave his hair and his strength be gone? Well, as we mentioned earlier, Samson has already violated every other aspect of his Nazarite vow. And his strength didn't go away. He's been extremely immoral in intermarrying with the Philistines and having other relations illicitly with the Philistines. And God hasn't taken away the strength yet. And he's gotten so close to the line before and God's always come through. You know, it, it probably won't make any difference. I don't know that Samson was thinking clearly, but in the back of his mind and subconscious, I, I think he's beginning to get used to the fact that God's always going to swoop in and God's always going to, it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter what I violate, it'll be fine. Well, it's not fine. God finally says, Samson, you don't get it. <laughs> this is the end of the line. There's more, no more deliverance here. This is the last straw. And so Samson finds himself devoid of strength, captured by the Philistines. And yet God, even at that point, as Samson prays to him, recognizes his dependence upon God, does still intervene. Yes, God's mercy endures forever, but we cannot take that for granted. Because if we refuse to respond to his mercy... We will experience his justice in the end. We will experience the consequences of our sin, if not now, in eternity. God will always be merciful. That's who he is. 
That is his character. But we may not experience the blessings of his mercy. So why is Samson mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews 11 and verse 32, after what some have called the Hall of Fame of Faith, we read, For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. You know, I thought maybe time would fail him because there would be a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> Uh, But brethren, Hebrews 11 is not the hall of fame of faith. The only fame in that is God. The entire idea of faith isn't something that we can take great pride in. The entire idea of faith is our reliance and dependence upon God. Hebrews 11 isn't written so that we will glorify these people. It's written so that we will glorify the God in whom they trusted. And Samson, though in the context of Judges, we see his great immorality and corruption at two times in his life shows a dependence upon God. And in fact, those two times are the times where it says he judged Israel. Notice in chapter 15, Verse 18, after he has brought about a great slaughter of the Philistines. In chapter 15, starting verse 18, it says, And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is in, at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he uh, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called in Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. It seems, in fact, maybe all of the deliverance that he was beginning to, to bring before that isn't included in his 20 years of judging. Uh, it seems that this is kind of the introducing of him judging Israel when he here recognizes his dependence upon God by calling upon his name. Towards the end of that 20 years, we see that he has become extremely corrupt uh, in his relationship with the prostitute in, in Gaza and also Delilah. But it's at the end of his life once again, in verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. And it's at the very end of chapter 16, we're told he judged Israel 20 years. It's interesting, Samson's the only one that's mentioned twice of. And both cases are the glimpses of faith that we see in his life, where he remembers where his strength lies in the Lord. And so what are we intended to learn from all of this? But then God's mercy is not dependent on our faithfulness. God is merciful because he is merciful, because he wants to show mercy, because he delights in showing mercy. But whether or not we experience the blessings of that mercy, whether or not his ultimate deliverance and fellowship are things that we are experiencing, are dependent on how we respond to his mercy. It's not that we convince God to be merciful. God, look how good I'm being. Don't you think you should be merciful to me? 
The entire idea of mercy is that God is not giving us the judgment that he deserves. The idea of grace that he is giving us something that we don't deserve. But we do have to respond to that mercy. Romans chapter 5, we're told God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing that we did that convinced God that it was a good idea to send his son down to die on our behalf. In fact, every single thing that we did would scream otherwise. But God, because he is merciful, sent his son and paid the most uh, precious price imaginable so that we, sinners, ungodly, enemies of his, could be saved. But notice what it says later in Romans, in chapter 11 and verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. God shows forth his loving kindness, his mercy, his grace to all, to humanity who cannot begin to deserve it. But if we want to experience the blessings of his kindness, the blessings of his mercy, we must respond. We must continue in his kindness. We must allow his mercy to motivate within us a genuine repentance, a godly sorrow, a full surrender unto him. So what about you today? God is merciful. His mercy endures forever, and he is merciful yet still today to a humanity who from the beginning has rebelled against him. But his mercy must be responded to. And it must not be responded to simply out of a self-serving desire to uh, avoid the consequences of our sins. We can't just say, yes, I messed up, and yes, there are these consequences, but God, can't you take care of that? No, genuine repentance is coming to God recognizing the, the gravity of what we have done against him, of how we have rejected him, rebelled against him, made ourselves his enemy, ruined his perfect image within us, recognizing that we have no claim on his mercy. And yet, if God is willing, which he is, God's mercy is there to transform us, to give us a new life and new heart, that we can bury the old man of sin in the waters of baptism. We can be raised to live a new life to his glory. What about you today? Have you come to him in full surrender to his mercy? Have you allowed it to do its proper work within you? If not, won't you make that commitment today? Confessing your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, bearing the old man of sin in the waters of baptism. If you've made that commitment but you're not living it, won't you make the change today? Won't you allow God's mercy to do its perfect work within you, that you can have fellowship with him? If there's any way that we can help you in your service to the Lord, we ask that you'll make that known at this time by coming to the front as we stand and sing together.